Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. You can find me on Facebook at Galen Trombley, on Instagram at Galen Trombley, and on YouTube at Galen Trombley. Spelling G-A-E-L-A-N-T-R-O-M-B-L-E-Y. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. Hello, everybody. This is episode 84 of the Galen Trombley Show, and I have a guy here, uh, great, great, great man. Um, we met, I just was, just found out five years ago now, which is maybe five or six years ago now, which doesn't seem that long because uh, we met through real estate, but, you know, we've, I, we've stayed in touch slightly, not like, not like calling each other every day, but, you know, I say once a year, we probably connect or see each other at some, some facet. Yeah. Um, so, my guest today is Bill McColgan, and he is the president and CEO at Mountain Lake PBS. Um, great guy, and I will Bill for nobody or people that do not know you because you're you're an import to the North Country. Mm, so we're I gonna am. give people kind of a background how you became 2020 Bill McColgan. <laughs> I'll give you your elevator well, pitch, but you can expand on it. We got time. Well, I'm uh, I am not a North Country native, as you said. Um, we love it here, uh, but we moved up here in uh, 2015. Uh, I came up to become the director of production and content for Mountain Lake PBS, which soon became the director of finance and then uh, evolved into uh, my present position as uh, president and CEO, which I've been since spring of 2017. Um, I grew up in Boston. I was born in Montana, so um, the mountains came, uh, came natural to me. Um, but I was born in Montana. Uh, my wife Brenda is also, or uh, is also from Boston. I grew up in Boston from the time I was a year old. Uh, my dad was from Boston. My mom was from Montana. They met in college. Um, he, they came back uh, to the Boston area. Uh, I grew up um, first in the city, and then uh, moved to the suburbs when I was about ten. Uh, went out to college in California, uh, in the Bay Area. You, you, can, um, you can give them a shout out. It's on your hat. Well, I, I, I went to Stanford, um, which was a beautiful campus. Again, um, uh, mountains surrounding you. Um, it, was, it was a very, really a beautiful place to go to school. Um, but I came back home after that. Um, and uh, my career has taken me, uh, I've been a news reporter, a news director, an executive producer of sports, um, a programming development head for a regional cable network. Um, I managed a uh, nonprofit in the uh, Boston area. Uh, but I had never worked for a PBS station until I came here. And... Um, I saw this job come come available um, more than five years ago now, the director of production and content, um, in a beautiful part of the country that I'd never been to. Um, I have family uh, in Burlington, uh, cousins, but I, uh, for whatever reason, I'd never made it across the lake. So the first time I came here was for my interview. Uh, and I got off the plane at Plattsburgh uh, Airport and uh, 
took a look around. It was the middle of the winter. It was February. So, um, but oddly enough, there was less snow on the ground here than there was in Boston. And I said, well, so I, you know, I'm going somewhere colder, but at least it's not more snow. Um, but more, more than that, as I got to know the people and I got to, um, uh, have lunch with some people down at Iris's and, um, take a drive around. And uh, many of those drives were with you looking at homes. Um, I just started to really fall in love with, uh, with the North country, with Clinton County, the Plattsburgh area. And maybe it's, uh, having the appreciation of coming from somewhere else where it was exciting and new, and I really saw the wonderful things about this community, um, and we were really happy to be a part of it. It was a big change for uh, Brenda in particular. She'd never lived outside of the Boston area. So, yeah, so when you guys came up, I I remember it was kind of, because I think I met with you first, and then your family came up later on, and I, I got to know them, and I th- you told me Boston and then you came up here and it was, it was always one where you, I think you were moving up and from my memory, cause it's five years ago and I thought it was much sooner because <laughs> time does fly. Um, that I just figured that, or I thought, I think at the time that the process was kind of long for you because it was, you, I think you at the time when you first came out, I don't know if you had taken the job yet or you were interviewing for the job. And I think it was one of a couple, um, did you have something out west too? Am I thinking that? I wrong? did. I had a, I had a couple of uh, of opportunities at the time, um, but this one sort of stood out. And I, when I came up and I met the people at the station and I started meeting people, um, when they offered me the job, I, I I took it. That said, when you move somewhere, as as many of your listeners probably know, when you move somewhere far away, there's a lot of moving parts to that move. So I came up by myself. So I was, I was up here for a good six months, mm-hmm. um, by myself living at either the super eight or at, uh, an apartment in downtown Plattsburgh, which is normally reserved for students because it was the summertime, <laughs> um, waiting for, um, Brenda and, uh, and our kids to finish the school year. She was working in the local public school system down there and to sell the house. And then we came up and uh, found our home in Peru and uh, we've been there ever since. So, yeah, so that was my memories when you came up. You weren't like fully committed. Well, you might have been fully committed, but I was always, I, I know enough about real estate that it's like things can always shake up and you could have like easily have gone. So, uh, but it was good. I'm glad you guys are here. You obviously had a very nice, you live in a very nice area in Peru. And um, now, a couple things. The Mountain Lake PBS. So this is, and I am terrible at this because when I was a kid, we we watched Mountain Lake PBS all the time mm-hmm. and had a lot of um, different, I rem- again, I don't know if they still have these, but I mean, you obviously had like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was a big one, um, but we had uh, Wishbone it was a dog show, right? He used to do the books and this, right. and I'm going back like early mid nineties. And then they had a show, I think it was called Zoom, which was like almost a science experiment show. It was produced in Boston. Okay. So mm-hmm. and they had all like the kids were on it and 
we used to watch that all the time in the summer. So there was a lot of um, Arthur. Was Arthur on there? Yeah. Arthur was one of my all-time favorites growing up. The Aardvark as Arthur's a kid. Arthur's still on. Is it? That's amazing. Mm-hmm. So the, all those shows that we grew up watching on PBS, partly because we had school. When school got out in the summer, we went down to our, our family camp, which wasn't far from our house. It was probably 10 minutes away. But we stayed down there. Well, my parents were old school. We weren't getting cable. We weren't getting anything. So you were – you had – you might have had NBC, CB, like you had Channel 5, you had Channel 3, you had Mountain Lake PBS, you got a Canadian station, and it was like 33, 57, we had not a lot of stations. So by default, it was one of the three stations, and it probably came in the third best, one of the top three best mm-hmm. stations. So we ended up like watching these shows all summer long, and I loved them. And of course, being a little kid, you're probably, you know, what, you know sub 10 years old, even up to probably 12. And uh, as I've gotten older... I don't watch it enough, which to me is like the biggest. And I don't watch a lot of TV in general, but Mountain Lake PBS is one. Like we enjoy Sunday morning on um, CBS. So for whatever reason, I'm not home enough to watch like TV. But like in the morning, I like those little offshoot 10-minute, 15-minute segments on whatever. And they're the oddest things. They'll come up with some segment. I'm like, that's incredible. I never would have. There was one the other day. It was this, this guy who made – I forgot where he was originally from. India, I think it was, mm-hmm. and he makes this Indian food off of a truck stop out west, and it's phenomenal. It's like this world-renowned food, and he makes it at a truck stop off of a highway. But he's known for this, and I never would have looked at it and watched a segment on this guy. Mountain Lake PBS does a lot of the same stuff, but more local, and I've had people tell me, like, you should watch this and this on it, and because I love that kind of stuff, and I never do. So kind of shame on me for it, but like for Mountain Lake PBS, what... What do you guys focus on and what is your big mission and what do you – what's the TV you put on? What's the media you put on? Because I've seen some interviews. Um, I think you did the interview. Was it with Gary Douglas one time? Who did the interview? It was like a one-on-one with Gary. Well, um, we've done we've done one-on-ones with Gary for a while. Uh, most of our interviews that are of a harder news or mm-hmm. issues-oriented news are done by Tom Halleck. Oh, sorry. Tom, Tom, that was Tom yes. is our director of production and content now. Um, he joined us um, not long after he left WPTZ, which he had been there for many years mm-hmm. as, uh, as an anchor. Um, and he has been the driving force for our public affairs um, programming. He is the host and producer of our news magazine um, show, uh, Mountain Lake Journal, mm-hmm. which is a weekly show that, um, at least for the past several years, um, since I've uh, since I've been in uh, at Mountain Lake PBS, Mountain Lake Journal has really focused on longer forms storytelling, um, kind of thoughtful, thorough journalism, and really establishing a sense of place. And what I mean by that is doing the kinds of stories that really celebrate who we are. Um, so you mentioned this, you know, your example of, um, of a story that really is about a person. The best stories are about people. Mm-hmm. So th- although Tom's show may have some very uh, news-driven, issues-driven, longer-form interviews, a lot of what drives that show are the kind of... Um, thoughtful stories that we go out and tell about people who live here. We have a series that we've um, won a few Emmy Awards now for called Veterans Coming Home, which are profiles 
of returning veterans coming home to the North Country, the challenges, the successes, um, just what they're doing to sort of adjust from years of service in the military to now um, kind of bridging that military-civilian divide. And it's really meant to kind of showcase the fact that we have a lot of folks who have served in the military, and, and in our area, a really high number of folks, um, particularly if you talk about uh, our Native American um, communities, mm -hmm. where Native Americans serve at a higher rate that, than perhaps any other ethnic group in, in, the, in the United States military. If we can tell the stories of these folks, by telling the story of an individual, you really tell universal stories. And that's a really important part of what any good TV station is doing. And when you mention, geez, I don't really watch TV. Well, we find that a lot. A mm -hmm. lot of people don't watch TV, or if they do watch TV, they certainly don't do it the way that I did when I was mm -hmm. young. Yeah. You know, it's not appointment viewing necessarily. You're not saying, well, I'm, I'm only going to get my news at 6 o'clock and 11 o'clock, and that's it. You know, you can get your news anytime you want now. Yeah. So a lot of our focus is on building up our, our brand online as well as on air. We still have a lot of traditional on air viewership and we need to make sure that channel 57 serves them. Mm -hmm. But a lot of what we do now is online or engagement in the community, um, particularly pre COVID a lot of our efforts were going out, taking some of this content and building events around it where we could bring people together, convene people, whether it's at the Waylandsburg Grange Hall or maybe it's at the, um, uh, the Jewish Public Library in Montreal where we bring people together look at some content, some of it's national content because mm -hmm. we've got wonderful national PBS content uh, as a PBS member station that is at our disposal to use, or local content that we produce. Um, and in particularly, we often focus our local content initiatives on building on something that is happening on national PBS. Um, great example of that might be that... Um, there was a program not long ago where the focus was on um, endangered species globally and the need to really protect endangered species. Well, what could we do to really build an initiative around that? Focus on the endangered species in the Adirondacks. You know, so go into Lake Placid, talk to the folks from the Adirondack Research Consortium talk to the folks who are really working on those kinds of issues on a daily basis and take that national global issue and bring it down to the local level. That's what a local public broadcaster is here to do. And as a station that really is here to serve the North Country, um, our reach is into southern Quebec, um, into Vermont, and into the eastern spit of Ontario, um, but we know that our 
base of operations is right here in Clinton, Franklin, and Essex counties. Those are the areas where we have to focus a lot of our attention, and that's where a lot of our underserved communities are, um, whether it be for uh, cultural programming or educational initiatives. This is where we focus a lot, uh, really the lion's share of our attention is to these communities that aren't getting those kinds of services perhaps from other places. When COVID struck, it became really important for us to be able to say, let's take that reputation that we've built for good reason over the years for quality children's educational programming and say, what can we do during the school day, during the weekdays now, mm -hmm. to help with this issue of kids having to go home, that they, they couldn't go to school? Yeah. So we worked with the New York State Education Department um, and local educators to build a new schedule during the day that was not just focused on Arthur, mm -hmm although that was part of it, mm -hmm. but expanded into blocks of programming for middle schoolers and uh, high school and junior high school to really uh, give those kinds of opportunities to showcase not only quality educational programming, but programming that was had New York State uh, Education Department curriculum approved uh, materials that we could uh, present alongside that programming. That's something we're still looking at, you know, right now as schools are getting back in kind of a little bit here and a little bit there on how they're going to be able to get back into the classroom full time. We know that they're not all going to be back in the classroom full time. So that's still something that we're looking at as the schools open in the fall. It, it, no, what's because again, I I watch uh, PBS more when I was a child. Um, does that make up from a viewership perspective? Is that is that that's a pretty big segment for you guys, right? It is a segment, but it's a segment during certain day parts. I mean, the 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 prime time, the way a PBS member station works mm -hmm. is um, we pay dues to PBS to be a PBS member station. And as part of that, we agree that we're going to present the PBS Kids lineup, mm -hmm. which we do during the day, and that we're going to present the PBS Prime Time lineup um, five days, five nights a week. Mm -hmm. And the PBS Prime Time lineup are really important, popular programs like Masterpiece, which is often... Um, some of the highest quality drama that you can find. Um, things like Great Performances, which is Broadway showcased and, um, and wonderful theatrical performances. Antiques Roadshow. Yeah, that's the one I remember watching. Huge, yeah. huge show. Yeah. Nature, Nova. Um, these are programs that um, are really you know, the basis of our primetime lineup. Um, which every PBS station runs. PBS NewsHour, Frontline, mm -hmm. th those kinds of programs have become perhaps even more popular and more important 
because they're not soundbite driven. They're long form, mm -hmm. thorough, thoughtful journalism that does not come at stories with a preconceived bias. As someone who was trained as a journalist, came up in broadcast journalism, one of the things I've found troubling over the years about how broadcast journalism has evolved, um, and this really started to take flight when there became a plethora of outlets in the age of cable, was that too many so-called news operations were not basing their focus or their journalistic focus on let's present the important news of the day. They were presenting it based on, well, we know who our audience are, our audience is liberal, or our audience is conservative, and therefore we are going to tailor our efforts towards that. Which, in my view, is why over time, it's one of the factors over time of why we don't speak to each other very well anymore about important issues mm -hmm. because our frame of references are completely different. Well, my, my, uh, so when I grew up now, I'm 30 years old. So my longevity of news is not, I mean, it's decent in the sense that when I grew up, there wasn't, um, like I said, the cable, there wasn't the live stream, there wasn't all these, um, social media outlets. There wasn't all these, um, I mean, think about it, like 2020, here I am. I have podcast studio. We have, I checked the numbers. We have a decent amount of downloads on all these episodes. This is just me doing it out of my office mm -hmm. with some setup and a little bit of know-how. But the reason I like the long form, it's not sound bites. Like you're here to talk for an extended period of time. And whether you talk about something, your background, like I said, your background, whether you talk about your work, whether you talk about things that are important to you or, or whatever, you're allowed to expand on them. The thing I have, the issue, and again, I don't watch a lot of news. I'm more caught up on news now than I've been in 10 years because COVID, I was home every night for COVID. I was home all day, but I was there at night. We'd put the TV on. We'd watch the news. The news would turn into the national news, would turn into whatever. It's out after. So we'll be watching a national news channel. And in this case, uh, NBC nightly news, whatever, with uh, Lester Holt. I like Lester. Seems like a good dude. But an hour, a half hour show is 27 minutes of negativity followed by the last three minutes of the window where it was like this good topic, like something mm -hmm. that was, you know, a positive in the world. And it, it, you just watch the news. I'm like, I get so depressed because, you know, take anything, take the, the riots or not the riots, but the, the protests for the Black Lives Matter movement. That's, that's great. Well, the news spent how much of those were actually riots? Probably 1% of all protests were riots, mm -hmm. but it made 90% of the news. And I'm like, we're focusing on the wrong part of, and maybe I have the, maybe I have the, the level. You know, wrong. that's one of the, and, and honestly, it's one of the things that drew me later in my career to want to work for PBS because it isn't that if it bleeds, it leads mentality. Yeah. You can't ignore important um, social movements because you disagree with them or you can't ignore violence when it happens. But too often 
I think in our media world, and this is not a new issue. Mm-hmm. The the if it bleeds, it leads. I used to talk about in journalism classes I took in the eighties. You know, this is always this has been a problem for a long time. Mm-hmm. That said, you what I find when I talk to people who um, are supporters or viewers of Mountain Lake PBS. They will point to things like um, PBS NewsHour on the national level and Mountain Lake PBS, Tom Halleck's efforts on the local level, and say, we appreciate the fact that you're, you're really looking at this issue from a holistic perspective and that you're, under, you're understanding that this isn't just, I'm not just going to pick stories to fulfill my preconceived um, notion of a point of view that I want to get across to you. That can be problematic. I think that can be problematic um, on both sides. You know, if you're advocating while you're performing journalism, then it's not really journalism. It doesn't mean that it's not of value, you know, editorials have always been of value Mm -hmm. but it isn't the same as going in and doing long-form thoughtful journalism that's yeah and that's what i appreciate because if we talked about you know when i and i watched the segment i watched with the most recent one i had watched with gary this was a few months ago i think and i and i forgot what the topic was maybe it was the closure of the border or something Mm -hmm. along those lines it was with tom and i think it was it was probably about 10 to 15 minutes of what I watched. I don't know if it was longer, but the clip I watched was 10 to 15 minutes, but it was good. And I think Gary is a brilliant guy and you allow Gary to speak. And again, you're not talking like a, a quick soundbite or a headline. You're allowing him to expand and, and you're like, okay, that makes sense. And I find there's a lot of the, the opinionated pieces in journalism. I, I agree. They're important in their place, but I said if, that, if your majority of the stuff seems like it's always from an opinionated state – and the people they interview have opinionations or opinions, opinions, I guess, mm-hmm. opinionations, making up words here, opinions, and which is fine. But I, I do like the idea that you're just presenting like this happened and this happened. And I like the, the more documentation role of journalism and then bringing things to the light. Like you said, issues to the light, which, which I think are great and they should happen. Um, but there's so much negativity and there's so much opinionated pieces. And again, if you go from station to station, you know who they're trying to um, appeal tailor to. or appeal to. And they have their, their base. And I, that's the part that I find kind of disheartening when I'm looking. Because I, I would like I, – like I think the journalism stuff, that's, my, that's like where I'd want to listen to. I, yeah. we, we spoke about it, like Sunday morning. I like the fact they do a 15-minute segment or half-hour, 20-minute segment on – uh, one was on Jimmy Buffett. I know a couple Jimmy Buffett songs, not a big right. Jimmy Buffett fan or follower, but it's interesting to hear him talk about yeah. this piece, but I like that. You know, it's interesting. And, and being objective and being fair in your um, journalism and your storytelling doesn't mean you disregard reality. You know, and and I always have the caveat that when I was a reporter, I can remember very distinctly doing a story that was about a, a local controversy about the uh, expansion of some landfill. 
I mean, this is how small this was. You can be very much down the, down the middle and really try to understand and present both points of view. And as was the case in this story that I did, both sides considered me biased. Why did they consider me biased? Because I wasn't completely on either side. That I recognized that there were um, nuances to the issue. That it wasn't all black and white. So there's no way that you can get away. If you're doing news, there's no way you can get away from someone thinking that you're biased. Mm -hmm. Okay, And sometimes it's because you report what really happened and they don't like that because it's not, you know, it it doesn't jibe with their worldview. So that doesn't mean that you stop telling those stories. Um, But I think it's important that as a journalist, you be able to reflect upon yourself that you are going into each story and understanding that you don't have to, you know, turn a blind eye to things being said to you that are lies Mm -hmm. and, and just present that. But you do have to go in and say, look, I, I would always go into an interview or a story until I, it was proven to me differently with the attitude that the person speaking to me was coming at this issue or coming at this, um, at this presentation from a good place, that they believed in what they were saying, that they had an opinion they needed to share, you know, and, and all interviews are based on drawing out, you know, one of a few things, you know, facts, um, eyewitness accounts, expertise, or opinion. Those are the, those are the things you're trying to extract in any interview. And until it's proven to a reporter that someone is, um, is deliberately trying to be misleading, I never assume that someone's deliberately trying to be misleading. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, I think that too often in today's world, um, if you go on to, particularly if you go onto the internet, um, because we, we talk about Fox News versus MSNBC, et cetera. But go on to the internet and it becomes even more stark, you oh, know, yeah. that there's internet websites that call themselves news sites that are very much far on the right or far on the left. And they will assume that anyone who disagrees with them politically is purposefully lying to them, you know, and I don't think you can do that. Mm-hmm. This is one of the things that we have. And, and one of the things that I'm always proud of when I look at our programming, that we don't go into things with that assumption. It's very important not to go into that with that assumption until it is shown to you that that, is, you know, that, that someone is being misleading. Do you, do you find, are you good 
I think you I think you would just based on what you said. Are you good at stepping back? Because obviously everybody has viewpoints and you believe in certain things and able to push those aside for the, like like you said, put my beliefs or preconceived notions to the side, come out with a blank you know, starting point. We're starting from scratch here. Talking to someone not and not already formulating your own opinion, but being able to separate the two and almost look at it from an over kind of like a 30,000 foot view mm-hmm. of, you know, where I'm... Bill doing the interview, the journalist, and I'm interviewing subject A, and I know some background on them, but I'm going to come in totally, you know, unbiased, ask them questions about the facts and just let it go where it may. And able to do that, where do you think that some of that bias does creep in, or do you think you do a very good job at allowing, knowing that maybe I don't agree with him, but or her, but I can at least hear them out and well, let them expand on the I'm piece. not a reporter anymore. So I don't I don't report. Did did you ever do it or no? I did. Yeah. Um so I'm not I, I would like to think that I had that ability. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I like to think um that the folks that Judy Woodruff and Tom Halleck locally, they approach issues, they approach the kinds of stories that we do um with that mindset. Um, once again, I, I don't think it's possible to completely go through your life without having your own ideas creep in Mm -hmm. to some extent. Um, but I think it's important that, as I said before, you check yourself, Mm -hmm. you you step back, you're able to step back, as you said, um, and take a look at these issues for what they're worth. And of course, news and this kind of hard news programming is only a part of what PBS is about. Um, PBS's, our mission is to inspire and enrich communities with a, a variety of programming, including entertainment programming and public engagement. It's been harder to do public engagement in the time of COVID, but we're still trying to do it. We're doing it with things that are online. Mm-hmm. Um, it's harder to cover news during the, during the teeth, the, the, the first part of the crisis when things were shutting down, you know, we had our small little team that is designed to do a weekly news magazine. They, uh, for five nights in a row, were doing a half hour show every night. Now that's for three people. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot of yeah. content. Um, but it was important for us to be able to do that at the time. But even from that point, which was mid-March, right through the summer, Tom and his team have had to completely rethink how they do news. You know, little things like, okay, now I have to bring a boom mic to do an interview because I can't get up close to the interview subject. Mm -hmm. I've got to hold the mic stick six feet away. Or... We've got to redesign our, our systems because our studio has been closed because we're not open to the public to just come into the studio anymore, um, that we do things on Zoom or, you know, Skype, any other ways that we can possibly do these kinds of interviews because the interviews still need to get done. And, of course, you're seeing that on all kinds of programming. 
people are starting to come back into the studios now, but yeah. even when they're coming back into the studios, you will see it doesn't look anything like it used to. Yeah. You know, because we live in a different age. Um, so from a journalist perspective, when, when you went into, I mean, was that always your goal to be in journalism when you went to college? I like, was, um, well, did you major in that at Stanford? I, I was always, yes, I did. I, I majored in, um, broadcast communication with, uh, uh, with an emphasis in international relations. Um, didn't really do much with the international relations. I'm, I'm pretty close to uh, Canada now, so <laughs> I suppose now I am. Um, but the broadcast journalism was, was always the goal. I spent my first year as pre-med. Um, that was frankly because my dad thought that would really be a good idea. Yeah. And I was good at, you know, calculus and sciences, but I really didn't like it. Yeah. I didn't like the subject matter. Um, sometimes I look at my, uh, my, my best friend, my college roommate, uh, ended up becoming an orthopedic surgeon and he's obviously made a lot more money than I have. Um, but, um, I think you have to do, you got to follow your bliss. Um, and for me, uh, I liked writing. I liked communicating. It's probably why I also got into theater, um, because I spent quite a bit of time, um, doing, uh, as a secondary profession, doing musical theater around New England, um, with my wife and, um, but it's all kind of that communication. I mean, and there's various types of communication. Music is a form of communication. Theater is a form, a form of communication. Broadcast journalism is a very important form of uh, communication. And it's all based on storytelling. So, um, so when, when you get so obviously, you go into journalism, but you just talked about finding your bliss. Like when I, when I did real estate, I didn't find my reason for doing real estate. I think I found my reason for doing real estate about the time that I was working with you. Um, was when I got in at twenty, it was basically something to hold me over until I graduated and did something. Right. It was better than my, at that time, a one to 9 PM job in the middle mm-hmm. of the summer. And I was, I purely did it for better hours and to get paid a little bit more money for the hours I put in versus what I was doing. That was it. There was no, there was no very, there was not, not a very virtuous reason as to do it. It was purely means to the end to get to the next position from Again, about 2015 till now, I completely reshifted everything. Like, why do I do real estate? Why do I like doing it? And I focused on it. It's not the house. I lo- like houses. Trust me, seeing houses is cool. The architecture, the different layouts, of the rooms, the you know all the cool little things that people do in their house. Yes, that, that's exciting. Um, I like that aspect, but it wasn't my driving force. Then, as I got better, I really started to learn real estate, and I started to learn the cause and effects. And then I started to strip down real estate from all the, the sexiness of real estate that people see on TV and on social media and and houses and all these house tours. And what, especially in our area, again, focusing on the North country, what really matters? And I could strip that down to having done this for years and years and years. The, the, the themes that I saw with people, the themes I saw with buyers, the themes I saw with sellers, the, and a lot of it had to do with what was the 
the good and what was the bad with both. Mm -hmm. So kind of, we talked about what is the pain points of a buyer? What's the pain points of a seller? And they're all different. I mean, you came from a different area. Your position was different than many other buyers. But the whole idea was I could strip that down and then I found I was, I could really help people accomplish their goal based on the cards we were dealt. Meaning cards we were dealt are all different. Different. I mean, take a situation that no buyers or sellers are the same. They all have different situations. But how do I take their goal and the hand we're dealt and how do I problem solve that to accomplish it? So I find that real estate is a maze. We're trying to get to the end goal. We know what the, the end goal is. We're going to run into all these little dead ends along the way, but I know we can get to the final point. But I want to be able to be equipped with the knowledge and the know-how is when we hit those dead ends, how do we re readjust and get back on track? And I got really good at that. And I find that I'm really good at that right now. And I'm getting better at it because I just keep fine-tuning that, that skill set. The reason I do real estate now is to help people accomplish that goal. I like the aspect of talking to people mm -hmm. and I like the aspect of helping people. I just happen to do it from a standpoint of housing. And I use the, I tell people um, when I connect the dots, like I could never sell cars. I don't find that me selling a car to someone, I'm going to get the same level of satisfaction as I would to sell someone a home. Because mm -hmm. I find a home, you're much more attached to your home than you are to your car. Mm -hmm. Well, most people. I know there's some crazy car right. fanatics, but in the general scheme, the majority of the population is that. Same thing is if I'm selling someone a computer. I love my computer. It helps me with stuff. It's not as important to me as my home where I have my kids and my wife. So I look at the standpoint of helping people with that aspect as being very rewarding to myself. That's why I do mm -hmm. it. So for you, different subject. Like, why do you do journalism? Why well, were you attracted it, well, to journalism? Well, and I will say this uh, because I think maybe this um, can take the conversation a little bit in a different area. I have not been an active broadcast journalist for 20 years. Mm -hmm. So I don't do journalism. Um, I am a media manager now. But the reason that... What I got interested in, and I'll, and I'll go back to my days as an executive producer of sports. I was producing a um, nightly, one-hour sports show in the Boston market every night, Monday through Friday. I wasn't as interested in covering that day's Red Sox game with that show. What I was interested in was figuring out how do we branch out and make this show more significant through partnerships. So I would work with Northeastern University had uh, a group called the Center for the Study of Sport and Society with a brilliant director who we would bring on and talk about the importance of educational athletics and what was going on in hazing and you know the importance of issues going on that were about sports but were really more about society at large using sports as a jumping off point to talk about um, things that really had an impact beyond just did uh did Big Poppy hit a home run? You know, I love the Red Sox. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's great. It's good. I yeah. love, I love, you know, talking about sports, but I want to do more than that. I think that's what, when you look at Mountain Lake PBS, you come up here and what makes 
the station important is that it is not just a TV station. It is a nonprofit in the community. It's a cultural partner to the Strand and to the Montreal Jazz Festival and to the Lake Placid Center for the Arts and to the Depot Theater in Westport. It is an educational partner to CVES and SUNY Plattsburgh and Clinton and all of the various school systems. It's about partnerships and making each other stronger. If you can have a local public broadcaster that is able to take the strength of the PBS brand and those programming and build relationships in the community, then that's what it, that's the storytelling I'm also interested in, is really helping tell other people's stories. You know, making, making a contribution to this set of communities at large. And you talk about Gary Douglas because he's a, he's a great example of, you know, of someone else who's working with a variety of people within the community to make the whole community stronger. We love working with folks like that, um, whether they be in public office or whether they be um, running the local public library in Keene. You know, there are people who are doing important work and we want to tell those stories. Stories about people are always more important. When we talk about, you know, one of the things we, we got um, tremendous impact on was uh, a story um, when we talk about uh, the struggles that... Um, that black people have faced. Mm -hmm. Paul Larson, who is our arts producer, went down to the Siegel Music Colony and did a special, um, a special presentation about a story of a young black opera singer who was invited to Siegel Music Colony in the 50s. And we think of, you know, well, we're up in New York State. We're, we were never in the, you know, heart of Jim Crow South. So, mm -hmm. you know, obviously we didn't have the same issues. Well, when he came to the Siegel Music Colony, he had to live in a shack off to the side. And they called it, um, his name was Fulton Fryer, called it Fulton Fryer's Closet. Um, that shack is now sitting in the Adirondack Experience. Wow. In, in Blue Mountain Lake. We interviewed Fulton Fryer. It's his story. When you really bring it to a personal level, those are the stories that I think can touch the heart. Mm -hmm. If your heart is open to be touched, it's those stories that will do it. When you really listen to the person who isn't, you know, he... He's a wonderful man. He just wanted to sing, yeah. you know? He wanted to sing, and he was a tremendously gifted opera singer. So when we look at those kinds of things, we want to touch on these important issues and find those stories that can really tell those issues. But in addition to that, we know that our mission is also 
to do all of these other things, you know, to have the entertainment programming and to, um, you know, focus on, you know, my wife and I are going to be um, singing this Saturday at Curbside on the Harbor Side. Um, it goes back to our theatrical um, upbringing. We used to do a lot of theater around the New England area when we lived down there. Um, and I could go on and on about the wonderful um, musical theater community that you have, we'll, that we have here we'll in touch Plattsburgh. We'll on that before we leave, yeah. But part of our role is to make sure that, you know, Ben Pomerantz, when he's putting together this program um, that is trying to establish some sort of concert and cultural opportunities in a time when people are no longer allowed to gather in an enclosed theater, mm -hmm. Um, we want to focus on those kinds of things too. We want to make sure that people know what's going on um, out there. And that is what um, our public broadcaster really needs to be focused on. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, we're, we're, it's literally right outside our window, the stage that you'll be on. Um, I mean, I, I'm hoping one of the things down here is that in time, this will be all developed into something special, I think. And, and I think with the, you said the arts and the stage, and that's such an important part of culture. I mean, it. There's nothing that brings people together more than music. You know, mm -hmm. in, in any. I mean, however you want to look at it. I mean, if you've ever been to a concert, people aren't unhappy at a concert ever. Mm -hmm. Live music, and I think it just. It's one of those things that it crosses languages, crosses cultures, crosses beliefs. Like just listening to. There's people that I you know I'll listen to music and they will sit there and. You know, they'll, they'll say their political piece up on, on the stage, and, and, and I know half the crowd doesn't believe them, half of the crowd does believe them, but at the end of the day, we're all here listening to their music, so mm -hmm. it does, there is a, um, some type of a connection. Um, now, the, the musical theater aspect, again, I, I probably was just getting out of it when you moved to the area, um, and actually I talked about this on our last uh, podcast um, with Ed Gunther, and basically all this... I used to move, when I talk about music theater, I was involved for about 10 years. I moved stuff. I didn't sing a note. I didn't dance. I didn't do anything. Shazy music theater. Shazy music theater. I enjoyed, for many, like, towards the end of it, I, it was tough for me to do which, with work and stuff. But the f early years of that, when I was involved, probably for about the first six or seven years, I really enjoyed it. And it was fun to be the back part of making that vision a reality because there's there's a lot of effort and, and again you're talking a volunteer theater and i say volunteer i mean they're actually at some points paying some money that to help put this on whether it be the uh addition fee or whatever and mm -hmm. it's really a labor of love but it was so cool to see the talent that we had up here and now granted i was lucky you know i think shazy music theater was um a more advanced local theater in the sense that they you know they had a lot of people it wasn't just a community of shazy it was a lot of people came to make this happen it, it was, they put on some really good productions. And right. you, were you in any of them? I was not. Well, Cause, um, Brenda and I. Because you did I think, involved. We, we did, a, we did uh, one at the Strand. I did one um, with Artistry Community Theater, which is Derek Hopkins' group um, in Aus Sable. He was involved, right, with Shazy Music Theater he, at a time? He, well, that's the thing is that, there's, that a, there's a really talented cross-section of people who are involved in all of these groups. Yeah. Um, and you probably run across many of them, Jackie yeah. Roberton. Yeah, and, she's great. And yeah. um, 
you know, there's there's very very uh, Tom Lavin and Derek Hopkins and uh, Jennifer Moore who is playing for us uh, this Saturday night is perhaps one of the and we've worked a lot in the Boston area. She's perhaps one of the most talented musicians I've ever come across ever, and. We have these people in the North Country that are around. Brenda and I were supposed to do Chazy Music Theater's Mamma Mia in, in May. Like rescheduled, which right? Was just, well, we hope. I yeah. mean, it's, it's not That's actually the, the rescheduled yet. Yeah. Um, but Jason, the director, yep. is a, who I'm sure you I know, know very well. well. Yeah. He's, a, uh, he's a very talented guy. Um, I was looking forward to working with him. I had not worked with him until uh, since... We did the producers at the Strand. Yes, that's the um, one I remember you did. Yeah, and um, but my wife Brenda just did last summer a one-woman show in Essex oh. um, called "Love Linda," which was about the life of the wife of Cole Porter, told oh. through Cole Porter music. It was a wonderful show. Yeah. Um, and my hat was off to her. I don't know. So how she was. You stand she was the one. She was the one woman. Oh yeah. That's impressive. Oh, yeah. Because Cole so, Porter did Anything Goes, right? She, yes, he did a lot of those kinds of things. Uh, Night and Day is a, is, is a Cole Porter song. There's um, a number of great Cole Porter musicals. This was the story, um, basically, of his rather um, uncommon marriage. Um, Cole Porter was gay. But this was at a time when you, like it was 20s, harder right? to be, yeah, yeah, 20s, 30s, 40s, but it was harder to be openly gay. Mm-hmm. And he had a wife who was a uh, socialite, an American socialite. Um, and she was, and they had a love story of their own. Um, and that was the story. It was, it was really a, a, a brilliant wow. piece. Um, we were also supposed to do this summer... Uh, a production called I Do, I Do, which is about a married couple, which we did in Boston 25 this years ago. This was you ago. and Brenda. Yeah. Oh, that's so yeah, cool. So we had, we had about three shows canceled by COVID. Oh, no. So, um, and we're not the only ones. I, yeah. I mean, this is, this is something that I think a lot of um, the theater scene is, is, uh, is trying to grapple with, not just in the North Country. Um, but I, I tell this because... I don't know that um, that we always appreciate, and I can appreciate it maybe coming from outside, the brilliant talent that's in the North Country um, on a variety of levels. Mm-hmm. But there are musicians and singers and performers and actors in this area that are top quality, and they're doing it just for the love of performing. Yeah, th- well... I didn't realize. Yeah, I didn't. I knew you did it. I don't even think I knew Brenda was that involved. But that's that's awesome. Um, yeah, like Jason Bory. I majority of the ones that we did at Shazy Music Theater, he directed or mm-hmm. was definitely involved in some aspect. I mean, maybe one or two he wasn't. And I think honestly, it was just because he had done four or five in a row. The guy needed a you know at least a season off to yep. pursue other things. And um, but yeah, I mean the the just the aspect of the local level of just the one, the musicals are great. Like I love musical theater. I, I'm not, I'm not involved in them at all. And since, I mean, I was moving stuff in the background, but I've been to, I've only been to one Broadway show, but I went up to, um, we saw the Lion King down there a few years back. 
but I saw Book of Mormons up in uh, Montreal, which was hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was another one I saw. Um, I'm trying to think where where did I see it? Um, oh, um, Jersey Boys over in Flynn at yep. the Flynn. Excellent and show. Great, phenomenal. I, I love Frankie Valley and the Forest. I love the music because I grew up in the, the summertime. That was the music we listened to on uh, Cool One Hundred Five back in the day. It was uh, a lot of the fifty, the doo-wop and the and the, you know. You know, I, I just the four seasons were great, one of my favorite bands back then. So but listening to the just the storylines are phenomenal. And a lot of the thing with musical theater, I don't usually when you go see a movie, you kinda know what the movie's about. And I find with musical theater, a lot of the times I have no clue what they're about. And even when the Shay Z was like, Hey, we're doing anything goes, I'm like, I don't know what anything goes is. One of my favorite ones was the Drowsy Chaperone. I had no clue what the Drowsy Brilliant. Chaperone. And it is hilarious and, and there's hilarious. just the, yeah. the the writing and the scenes and the music and of course you know at Shazy we they had some very good people playing the parts they should have played kind of like they they, mm-hmm. they pulled off the roles very well and but I go in with zero expectation I'm like I have no clue what the drowsy chaperone's about and I left I'm like this is the best play that I've from Shazy that was my most favorite and uh, um actually was it uh was it the book of Eden what was a what was the play the garden, not the Garden of Eden. Well, Children of Eden. Children of Eden. Yes, that's thank, thank you. That was that was phenomenal, and that was one I knew it had to do with like um, the Bible. But I did that show twice. Yeah, that is it. That yep. if you ever ask anybody from Shazy Music Theater, that was done. I think back in like around two thousand. Mm-hmm. That was their best performance ever. It's a wonderful show. Yeah, it's a wonderful. And I think show. They had the biggest crowd. I think they actually had to open a second weekend to play that. I one. think you know, and the, people have a tendency to lump musical theater into one sort of genre, but musical theater really, I don't think you can pigeonhole it because the experience is very different from show to show. There are shows that are immensely complicated and dark, um, like Sweeney Todd, which is, um, we're doing a number from Sweeney Todd on Saturday, and uh, and Sweeney Todd is uh, a show that Brenda and I did in the '90s um, together. But it is uh, a very dark, um, brooding kind of a thing that has uh, a lot of humor in it. But it's essentially about a murderous barber um, who is taking revenge on the elite of London by killing them and baking them into pies. So it's not, you know, it isn't your... Was that the one Johnny light. Depp played in a movie? Johnny Depp played it in the movie, but um, more importantly, for, for those who live in this area, the person who played it on Broadway and in the first national touring company and has played it many times since, and you can find his performances on PBS, on YouTube, online, is a gentleman by the name of George Hearn, George Hearn is a multi-Tony Award winner, and he lives in Essex. What? Well, still, to this day? Lives, he, he lives in Essex, and he is wow. a supporter of the local community theater scene. Um, What's he his is name? A, George Hearn. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. And um, George Hearn is one of my idols. Um, if you've seen George Hearn play... He, he he was uh, in the original cast of La Caja Faux, and he was Sweeney Todd. And that kind of shows... Have you met him? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And he's, how, he's brilliant. How old is he now, roughly? Uh, 
you know, George has been retired from the active um, Broadway scene for a while, so yeah. I don't know exactly how old he is, but oh, that's um, so cool. but he's um, but he won. He played Sweeney Todd on Broadway in 1979. So that's cool. Uh, you know, he's a uh, he's just a gift. But if what I kind of enjoy, what the sh- numbers that we'll be doing, kind of range from. Stephen Sondheim, Sweeney Todd, to uh, to a song from Monty Python, which you know, Spam a Lot, yeah, which was a big Broadway hit, was based on, you know, Monty Python. And who uh, was that? A, was that a Monty Python? I can't remember. Was that a musical or that? I remember the movie, but I, it was so long ago. Like, it no, had music in it. Was that the one with Mel Brooks and? Or am I thinking no, of the wrong one? No, no, no. Um, Monty Python uh, and the I'm, Holy Grail. I remember watching it. Uh, it was uh, Monty Python was a uh, brilliant troupe of British comedians, one American who did most of the animation. Um, and they did uh, their program originally around 1970, early 70s, um, on the BBC. And PBS used to carry it. So you would watch it on you know, on PBS stations around the country. And that's how I got to know Monty Python. And then they did a number of um, really hysterical movies. But long after they broke up, Eric Idle um, wrote the musical Spamalot. And much of the music was from their movies. It, so I just remember watching as a kid... Um, but again, it's it's one of those. I think my parents played it for me, and it was mm-hmm. funny. I just remember they. If it's the one I'm thinking of, they it was the guys that like rode around on horses, but they weren't really on horses. And then no, was, they had someone following them with coconut shells. Yeah, and it was just like yes, it, it, it was just very like, silly. It was a very yeah, very silly, but it, it like made you laugh because it was just it was like kind of dumb. It's it was absurdist just, comedy. Yeah, it was just like uh-huh. this is this is like yeah, absurd. I'm like why why am I watching this? But it's hilarious that right. these guys are just pretending and and I think it had to do with the. Uh, Kind of was like Don Quixote with the windmills. Wasn't that a scene where they went and there were windmills? I don't know. It was obviously like whatever. There were windmills, but it was he thought there was something else, and they had like a whole spoof mm-hmm. on that. Yep. Those are the – I mean, I remember watching those and as a kid, but I have very – there was something with a rabbit, and it was very long ago, that, so my memory's not great on them, That's but they were the funny. That's the thing. You can have – so you can have Hamilton – um, and for a year, you know, years past, a musical 1776, which was really bridging history to a modern audience in local theater or in, in Broadway. Um, and then you can have just absurd physical comedy like The Producers or Spamalot. Yeah. Um, it's really, there's something in it for everyone. And I think what, what I'm concerned about is when are we going to be able to go back to that? Because Broadway is closed. I was going to say, Broadway must be closed right now. It is closed, and they talk about it opening back up in January, but are we going to be prepared? Even if we're open, are people going to be prepared to be sitting shoulder to shoulder with strangers um, in in an enclosed theater? I'm not even... I mean, I think that you can do that by sectioning off seats so you don't sit next to each other, but... I'm thinking more of you have performances. People on stage aren't staying six feet apart in performances, no. so that it's more of I everything think, changes and the yeah, like makeup but even and all that. You, you can break up, you know, the seats, but then the economics change. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, these economics are based on yeah. you filling those seats. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what the answer is going yeah. to be. Yeah. yeah. And I, as you were speaking about that, that came into my head. Is it one that can't be open? And how does that affect? Because I know like sports are open and they're not putting people in the seats. Um, but at the same token, I think viewership is up a lot in sports because you can't go to the games. And I haven't been watching a lot of like the bubble sports. Mm-hmm. Um I've watched a little bit. I'll watch more football when it comes on. Um, I've been watching a lot of golf. I, I really like, I've always liked golf, but golf hasn't changed at all. There's a golf, little, I mean, there's, there's no real impact on golf. You're no. missing the gallery, but the gallery was just a few rows of people. Um, and a couple claps and stuff, but it's almost, it's funny. The other day I was watching one, one of the players teed off and you hear, you hear a crowd like yelling and hollering. Like what's going on? Well, I've been to some golf tournaments like in real life and, the thing is, you got to look at these golf courses. They're in the middle of communities a lot of the time. So what mm-hmm. happens is they might be playing a, a hole that's kind of along the road or near the community. Mm-hmm. And these people have like ripped open the tarp around the fence and they're poking their head through to watch and they're screaming and yelling. But it's so funny because you're so used now we're like trained that there's no clapping or somebody makes a big putt. You hear the player react. You don't hear the crowd react because there's no yeah. crowd. But it's funny when you start now you hear it and like, wait, what, there's people there. What's going on? And yeah. in a short amount of time, we've already trained ourselves as there's no crowd. But it is a trip when you're watching like professional hockey and they have canvases over, or they have like a tarp over all the seats and they'll, they'll throw up like the home team's like images all over or the stadium. In, or in basketball, they're putting up the, they're putting up pictures of people watching from home. Yeah. You will see lots of people up in the, they're not in the stands but they're putting their faces up. And um, I was watching a game last night, and then all of a sudden I heard the chant defense coming from the crowd and thinking, okay, well, they're, they're piping that in. Yeah. So they're pipe, they're, and I think they're doing that for the benefit of the players to an extent, but really for the viewers at home. Yeah. Because without that sound, it would be a surreal quality to watching just... We're not conditioned to just watch a game where all you hear is the players talking to each other and the squeak of the sneakers. Yeah. You know, so they are trying to pump in a little bit of sound. So the two the two sports, one was, I was watching a baseball game, I think it was the Yankees, and they put in fans in the stadium. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting like, what are the fans? Well, they, they, they whatever that's called, they... they superimposed it over the so we could see the fans obviously if he hit the home run it's just going in the right they can't see the fans and then i was watching soccer and this was a soccer game it was the english premier league and i kind of like it because I, I played soccer for a long time and i coached soccer and i like the the chatter on the field because you can't hear that live but when you're on the right. field you can hear players yelling because i mean they're kind of in their it's own part of the space. game yeah you have to talk it's like your 12th player is your ability to talk and communicate so I kind of was looking forward to hearing just the professionals talking on the field because I'm like, great, nobody's going to, we're not going to have the, pollu- the noise pollution. We can hear it. Well, then they started pumping in the, the crowd and the chanting. And I'm like, well, I, and I get it. Like part of it is the fan experience, but I'm like, I, I like being able to hear guys on the field just talk to each other like you're watching a summer league soccer right. game. And, but you're watching obviously the best of the best play. And it, there's just a level of, I like trying to pick that stuff up. And again, when I go back to golf, there was one point they had like a, a mic on. It was Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy standing on a tee at the, was a PGA at the time. 
and they're talking about professional sports and COVID, and they're just having a conversation like you and I were playing golf would have on a tee box, waiting for someone to move off the green. And it was funny to listen to them just candidly have this conversation back and forth because there was no crowd, and they could pick like, and they weren't trying to pick them up, but the mic was picking them up because they were trying to hit the shot and, and like hear the shot take off or whatever, and you could hear them in the background. Well, that was kind of a cool like behind the scenes we never would have gotten elsewise, and they were just talking about the football season and. Tiger Woods saying how much he was a Raiders fan and just all these behind the scenes that you never would have saw, but it added an element. At least I enjoyed that part of it because again, it's just a different view. We've never had this viewpoint before. And you're kind of, you're for what it's, I guess the negative of it, there's always positives that you can draw from it. And I find like, I try to grab dry draw out the positives um, from everything that we can, especially like the sports season. Like, well, we had no summer sports, but we're having a hell of a fall season because all this, the golf majors and all the playoffs and everything's just like pumped into like a four month uh, space. And like, this is great. There's meaningful games all season long where we didn't get the NFL or the uh, NHL and the NBA playoffs in the baseball season, but we're getting it. I mean, you're going to have four major sports going on or five major sports going on, you know, in a matter of months and all the championships are going to be won in October, November. Yeah. You know, football is obviously, I don't think will be as much affected season wide. I mean, it could, things could change, but well, you never know. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that that's the, the, the issue there is that, you know, you could have a breakout and that could incredibly impact the season um, yeah. because they're not in a bubble. Um, yeah. So we're really, you know, we're in a brave new world. We're in a, in a situation that that those of us in this room and listening on your podcast, mm-hmm. we've never been in. Mm-hmm. So... We don't really know exactly what's going to happen. And, you know, I look at it from what we've been trying to do with Mountain Lake PBS because we're so based in uh, community service and trying to figure out, well, what are the needs in the community that we can build on? Um, But what we do is really, as with anything, dependent upon the support we're able to get from the community. So we're always really grateful because we're a membership-based organization. Um, we have, uh, we have members, um, part of what we are able to, uh, to offer them is also, uh, our passport service, which is kind of an online treasure trove of PBS programs from over the years that are available online because to speak to what you said, people don't necessarily watch on air anymore. Mm -hmm. So our members have access to that. But we're also based, you know, we have uh, we have businesses in the community that support us by underwriting and sponsoring programs that we do. Um, it's really important that we continue to do the kind of work that is worthy of that support. Because without that support, we can't exist. Do you, do Public you f- broadcasting cannot exist. Do you find that like a PBS station would thrive more in, in a smaller local community like we are versus a metropolitan city you think no that no because well one of the things that a larger metropolitan city has is is a larger base of potential donors Mm -hmm. and quite honestly a larger base of potential donors with huge capacity you know when we live in the clinton county we don't have a lot of billionaires Mm -hmm. let's face it. well i mean not not from um i mean from a money standpoint but I look at it like um, 
our market, anything else. Like you live up in Clinton County, you make X amount versus the person that lives in another area, but the but the cost of living is more expensive. Like the mm-hmm. co- like you go to New York City, like yeah, of you're course. gonna make twice what I make, but you're paying twice what I I pay. Oh, absolutely. But I didn't know if from I find people here, and this maybe I'm wrong because I know there's people like you go down to like Pittsburgh or you go there's people that are very passionate about the area they live in, even if it's a city. But I find that there's people up in the North Country that are very tight knit to the North Country, where they find. And maybe this is everywhere, but I find there's probably some places that if there's a lot of imports of people that they go, it's like New York City. There's people that are diehard. I'm from New York City, but then there's a lot of people that move to New York City, mm-hmm. and they might they might kind of ad- adopt it, but it's not their hometown. Where you you know someone from New York City is from New York City, like that's right. the, that's the the New York Yankee fan, the uh, the crazy you know, like the you know the construction guy that's lived there for 30 years and has built half the buildings in New York City. Like those people are the ones I find that are very you know in touch with the bigger cities, but I'm finding like, if you do a, a special on, if Tom Halleck sits down and interviews someone, a lot of people are going to probably know that person or have a connection to that person just because mm-hmm. it's a smaller area. Or if you do some, t- you know, subject on, you know, a museum locally, people are like, yeah, I've driven by that all the time. I know exactly where it is. And I, I think you could bring to light more universal connections to people up here versus maybe a bigger city where like, well, that's cross town. I'm never even going to go there. Yeah, maybe I'm wrong on that, but I I would think that your your reach would do well. I will tell you the, the reality is that small stations like ours are struggling much more than large PBS stations yeah. in big cities. I mean, it's just it, it, it's not a secret. It's it's the reality. Yeah, and the larger stations often have, um, you know, and, and COVID has really thrown everything for a loop because, mm-hmm. you know, we, we haven't really seen the whole impact of COVID. But we're just like any other nonprofit in our communities. You know, we rely on um, membership. We rely on donations. We rely on corporate support. Um, and the amount that we're able to generate from that sort of enthusiasm, which is driven by the work we do in the community, is the only thing that allows us to expand those kinds of services. Mm -hmm. So when you speak of the fact that, well, I don't really watch TV, it becomes more and more incumbent upon us to say, well, have you visited Mm mountainlake.org? Have you you gone and, um, and followed us on Facebook? Mountain Lake PBS or on Instagram or on YouTube Mm -hmm. because we're reaching out in all of those different areas and it's critical that we do so. Oh, you know, we have to do that because we need to people. The fact is that with any PBS station, you know, people start to become members or get much more involved in it when a they have kids mm-hmm. yeah or b as they get older and more invested in their community mm-hmm. you know we don't necessarily and this is just the reality of all pbs stations we don't have a huge membership base of people in their 20s because people are at a different stage of life. Yeah. They're not watching our kids programming and they haven't really gotten necessarily, you know, 
people like you and the people from the um, Adirondack Young Professionals Club are sort of a, a, the exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. But most 20-year-olds, I know when I was in my 20s, I wasn't all that invested in the community I lived in in terms of knowing what was going on. Well, I think when I talked about the, um, like I think the five year about five years now when I said that I kind of figured out what I liked about here none of the thing that I kind of tapped into was and it's kind of the same thing with our company like how we structured a lot of things within the company and the things I strive for at our company have to do with I mean our, our slogan here is local matters like it's the idea that yeah. we that's why I mean, perfect storm like I have a couple kids now um, I'm totally settled down here you know I have a wife I have a house um, you know son a daughter one on the way like we're here we're in the north country then I look at, I have a lot of friends that are, are doing the same. They're establishing their roots, in, whether they're from here or not from here, there's a mixture of both. They're establishing their roots in our area. And then I started to look at, that's why, like, I'll be honest, that's why your name came up. I think I, I don't know, I mean, obviously, I, I know who you, who, you know, we know each other. But for some reason, you popped up the other day, and I don't know if it was, I was thinking about you guys, something popped up here, or you came, I don't know, something came in my radar, and I'm like, why haven't I had Bill on? Like, it just, like, it was one of those, like, aha, not aha, but it was like, what are you, are you kidding me? You're like, 80 something episodes, I never thought of having Bill on. And it just, but it's so random well, when and I. Let sp- me, and let me just jump back to what I was saying. I don't want, I think I, I, I'm misspeaking when I say, oh, people in their 20s aren't invested in their community. They clearly are. But they're not as necessarily as in touch with what is the public broadcaster in your community doing. Yeah. And that is in large part because of a perception that we haven't done enough to battle against, that we are old school media and we don't have anything for them. You know, we need to do a much better job of saying, look, we do, we don't just do these long form shows that are on Thursday night at eight o'clock and you may or may not be in front of your TV to watch them. Mm-hmm. But we do these stories that we're um, putting out on the web, that we're we're and we're interacting with people in a real, um, not a linear fashion, but a real convening of discussion and dialogue um, online and in other ways out in the community, and that is part of what a public broadcaster is supposed to do, in addition to the educational resources and working with the schools and putting on Antiques Roadshow. Yeah, well that's, I mean, I'm writing stuff down now because part of it is, I'm trans, I mean, it kind of goes right to what you said, like I just hit 30, but between the kids and between more of establishing myself, and I know there's, there's times I laugh at myself now as I've gotten older because I'm following into like the stereotypes you made as a kid. Like, you know, your parents and all these, like I'm turning into, I'm a dad now. Like I'm turning into, I like, like we said again, I like Sunday morning, making a cup of coffee, hanging out with the kids and putting that on, just having it as background. As I'm playing cars on the carpet, I can just kind of listen in on these stories. That's why like something like Mountain Lake PBS, I know myself, I'm going to be all in on this kind of stuff as I get old, like now and as I get older, I'll be more and more invested in it. But I'm starting to see, because again, as a kid, you don't really care where you grow up. You're having fun, you're doing your thing. But as you get older and you start to connect the dots and start to realize that there's more than just floating through life and just kind of doing whatever. Like I want to, you know, whether it's making an impact, and especially in our local area, I've talked plenty of times about 
this waterfront, there's a reason I like this office space. There's a reason I like looking out. And I, yes, the water's pretty and stuff, but I use Thinking this. Thinking of the vision. But it's the vision. It's, the down, it's, this down air, it's this area down here that to me is foreshadowing and a symbol of what I think is to come. But again, how can I play my small part? I'm not going to change everything, but I can play a small, I can play a small role in that and maybe have influence or, or maybe enough positive influence that somebody else would say, hey, I see what Galen's doing and maybe I'm a young professional. Maybe I can do something similar or maybe I can put my resources into our community because one of my, you know, and I've talked to people about this and this is something I want to really spearhead um, when the time's right. And I mean time's right, meaning I can put the, the necessary resources towards it. But, you know, getting people to stay in the community, like Plastic State has an influx of kids from all over the world every year. How do we get them to connect with our community where instead of going and I've had interns here and ask all the interns, okay, a couple questions. What are you majoring in? Okay, do you like Plattsburgh? Majoring in this. I love Plattsburgh. It's great. Cool. What are, would you stay in the community? Yeah, I think I would if, you know, if there's jobs or whatever. And I said, okay, great. And then follow up question. Where, what are you doing once you graduate? And it always ends with, well, I'm going to go back and fill in the, fill in hometown because mm-hmm. a lot of them don't have the connection to go from college to here. There's no liaison. Adirondack Young Professionals is probably as close as you get. And, and I've talked to some members of that. And a lot of these are really good friends of mine. How are we going to be the, potentially the group or the generation that bridges that gap where we can get those kids early, you know, in, in freshmen, uh, sophomores to connect with the local business community. So when they come out as um, kids that are coming out of college, not only do they have some connections, but they have some genuine friends up here that are not college. Because again, when you, you graduate college, to go back and hang with your college buddies, it's kind of like going back and hanging with your high school friends that are a year behind you. It just seems like you shouldn't be there. Like, right. you know, I graduated. I should be out and about. Well, once you graduate college, you're out and about is, is the community. And the community is me at, you know, someone at 25 to someone that's at 55, 65, you're peers at that point. I mean, right. you're, you know, and, and that's something that took me a few years to get used to that I can have a conversation. I'm not going to call you Mr. McColgan. I'm going to call you Bill. Like, mm-hmm. and, and you would never expect me as a 25, 30 year old to use that. And the idea is that you have to, like, I had to get over that idea that I'm now in a group of people that are 50, 60 years apart and we're all peers at that right. point. And how do we bridge the gap between the kids at college to, you know, the community. And a lot of this comes to, this is the stuff that I'm now more interested in than a lot of things in my twenties were completely different. You know, and the same thing, you go to college, you have friends, you move around, you do a bunch of different things and then you start to settle in whatever you're. And I it, think it's important that as, as a community, and this is again, something I take really seriously in terms of what Mountain Lake PBS can do is showcase and give an avenue for what we have here. Make sure that people know what is here. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that you'll find is people who want who do end up wanting to leave and say, Well, I'm not sure that there's anything for me here. And you know, I you hear that you hear that in a lot of communities. Mm-hmm. That is not unique yeah. Yeah. to Clinton County. You know, you can grow up almost anywhere and someone and people who've you know, who are younger are gonna say, Well, there's nothing for me here. The grass you know, is always greener. Th- yeah. There's always something better somewhere else. But let's face it, and this is where I come back to, um, culturally, 
we hit way above our weight. Mm-hmm. We hit way above our, or punch way above our weight culturally here. Is there as much to do on a nightly basis culturally here as there is in Montreal? No. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot. And once the border is open, Montreal's only an hour away. Yeah. You know? And I'm not sure that we take enough advantage of that mm-hmm. as, as folks from this side of the border. I'm always sort of surprised when I talk with people who um, who say, well, I haven't been to Montreal in years. Well, you know, it's yeah. do you, pretty do you nice go up city. Or, like, yeah. I mean, minus this year, do you go up a lot? Yeah. Because, I mean, there's there's a pretty good art scene up there. There's it's, a great art scene. I'd probably scene. say world-renowned and, and art scene. And, of course, but. it's, well, it is. It's a, it's a very cosmopolitan city. It doesn't mean that it necessarily is where you want to live. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we're intimidated because... You know the road signs are in a different language. Yeah, yeah. You know it's it's it can be really simple things. We as Americans get really comfortable with, you know, the fact that we're, for the most part, especially around here, monolingual. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, and we don't worry about you know dealing with oh, or, am I going to be able to read the sign? Am I going to be able to go up and look at that parking meter and figure out what what I'm supposed to do? Um, but if you can get past that, that is part of our community. You mm-hmm. know, Gary Douglas, we'll talk about him, talks about Plattsburgh being Montreal's American suburb. Yeah. Or really Clinton County. I think it's very true. And we should embrace that and take advantage of it both ways. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I was lucky enough growing up that we went to Montreal a lot. Mm-hmm. And I just have always grown up in Montreal. Like I can navigate Montreal fairly good considering it's in another country. And you've, you know, I've only driven there a handful of times. I mean, a lot of times when I was a kid, I didn't drive there, but lately, and I enjoy going to Montreal. Um, as the kids get older, that's where I hope we go a few times a, you know, a right. summer and, and whatever. But I think there's a lot of benefit to it. And, uh, I was going to say time wise, we're, we're, uh, yeah. we're hitting, we're hitting the limit here, but I think, um, no, a lot of this stuff is really good. And that's, Part of it, I'm writing down a bunch of stuff you're saying is because I've heard so many people recently within the last year talk about Mountain Lake Journal. And I'm like, I, why don't – because, again, I know you can go on and find other ways. I saw, I saw Gary's – Well, we just, won, we just won a New York State uh, Broadcasters Association Award for Excellence for Mountain Lake Journal as the best – local magazine show and that's not public television that's all television yeah that's awesome um but as i said we're we a lot of our maybe most powerful pieces uh, that we've produced lately have been these six minute pieces that you can also find online yeah so if you visit and, us at mountainlake.org visit us on youtube or facebook you'll see the kind of work that our team we have a we're, i'm blessed to have a really talented team um, not only in production, but engineering and uh, programming support um, and membership. They're very attentive to our members. Um, so, and we're also interested in always hearing from viewers or non-viewers about what they think we can do better. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check out more on you, um, or on PBS, Mountain Lake PBS, but Bill, I appreciate you coming on, and we kind of use this platform on, on the podcast as that's, I like to bring people on, have a good discussion with them, and talk mm-hmm. with them, but then it's also to highlight things in our area that, again, I'm very green to a lot of this stuff. I grew up with it, and then I was the, the 20-year-old demographic. You just kind of get away from it, and then you, you circle around, and it comes full circle, so um, yeah, I, I appreciate you coming on. Is there, again, if you want, just, you just kind of mentioned it, but anything specific or the website was, 
It's mountainlake.org. Um, one word, Mountain Lake. Uh, we also have, as we said, we have a we have a fairly sizable Facebook following for a station our size. We've got a larger Facebook following than most stations, um, and that's really based on a, a real effort to reach out into the community and uh, and showcase. But we'd love to have more followers. That is an important way for us to be able to not only spread our own mission but to tell the stories of what's going on in our communities. Cool. So um, everybody give, give Mountain Lake uh, PBS a follow and uh, check them out. And then if you need to reach them, um, I'm sure you can reach out to Bill or someone there with any mm-hmm. opinions you may have. At or 1 Sesame Street. One, I was, one Sesame Street I always in Plattsburgh. Love that. Did you get yep. a kick out of that when you first came up? I did. Yeah. I did. <laughs> so, all right, that's episode 84 of the Galen Trombley Show with Bill McCogan. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Galen Trombley Show. If you want to reach me, you can go on Facebook at Galen Trombley, on Instagram at Galen Trombley, and on YouTube at Galen Trombley. The spelling, G-A-E-L-A-N-T-R-O-M-B-L-E-Y.